In this podcast, I will be speaking to Dr. Jenny Robson. Dr. Robson, tell us about yourself. So, hello, and thanks for the opportunity to speak about one of my favourite topics, query fever caused by Coxiella bonetti. I've worked for the past 30 years as a microbiologist at Sullivan Nicolaitis Pathology, a private diagnostic laboratory in Brisbane, but we're fortunate to service not only the southeast, but also regional Queensland and northern New South Wales. And as a member of the Sonic Health, our lab also performs Q-fever serology referred from most of the Sonic labs throughout Australia. Jenny, it's such a specialty. Now, if a patient presenting to a GP clinic with influenza-like symptoms, what should prompt them to include Q-fever as a differential diagnosis? Well, there are, firstly, there are no pathognomonic symptoms for Q-fever. The illness is usually characterised by well-defined acute onset of fever, severe headaches, myalgia and fatigue and arthralgia. Mm-hmm. Rash, is un- rash is unusual and the biochemical hepatitis, though, is common. So whilst a cause of community-acquired pneumonia, particularly in other countries, most Australian cases have no more than mild respiratory symptoms. Mm-hmm. The latent period is two to five weeks. But think Q-fever, particularly if living in Queensland and New South Wales, the two states with the greatest numbers. Whilst most common in rural areas where animals, particularly cattle, sheep and and goats, are in larger number, it's not infrequently diagnosed in metropolitan and semi-urban patients Mm -hmm. who live or travel or have exposure to wildlife whilst mowing their lawns where kangaroos, bandicoots also graze. Small outbreaks have also been described in staff of vet surgeries following difficult deliveries of cats and dogs. Aerosols are the usual mode of transmission mm-hmm. and the hardy organisms resistant to desiccation and requiring only a, a low infectious dose is spread in the wind, sometimes for many car, uh, kilometres. Currently in Australia, about 50% of cases have no recognised animal exposure. Mm. There's an in- so there's an increased risk in dry, windy conditions and one of the most dangerous situations is exposure to patchouned animals. Ticks transmit the infection between animals and rarely Q-fever can be fo- follow a tick bite. Mm-hmm. Wow. Now, if a GP suspects a patient has contracted acute Q-fever, what lab tests should GPs request to diagnose? So I'd suggest full blood count, electrolytes, liver function tests, uh, uh, CRP and Q-fever PCR and serology. Not having the luxury of being able to meet the patients face-to-face, in the lab we become familiar with typical lab profiles consistent with acute Q fever. These include leukopenia, thrombocytopenia, Mm -hmm. modest numbers of atypical lymphocytes, a very high CRP, mild hyponatremia with the soda in the level of 130 to 135 due to transient inappropriate ADH, and biochemical hepatitis. I often see up tests that are frequently co-requested, and these include blood cultures, other zoonotic infections, leptospirosis, brucella and rickettsia, mm-hmm. also EBV, CMV, toxoplasma, viral hepatitis, and more recently, respiratory and COVID PCR. 
That's a big battery of tests. I don't recommend that. I think we can be refine them. But if, if I'm so I mentioned in the in acute Q fever, I really am most interested in seeing the full blood count, ELFTs, CRP and, uh, and um, Q fever, PCR and serology together. Now, can you explain why you would order a PCR and serology together? So, um, first of all, it, it is important to have a good understanding of what your pathology providers offers, and that's what we offer. Clinical microbiologists are always keen to discuss um, your patients with you, but um, laboratories have different testing algorithms. In my lab, we do this panel, which includes Q-fever PCR and a screening enzyme immunoassay for phase two IgG and IgM. Some laboratories may only perform one or other as per the request. Mm -hmm. um, I, I might, um, the reason we do both PCR and serology is the timing of the specimen collection in relation to the time of onset of symptoms is critical. More often than not, this information is not provided. Right. We want to cover that seronegative window period prior to the development of an antibody response, which okay. occurs around 10 days. <laughs> so in acute Q fever, the duration of PCR positivity is usually for short-lived, seven to 10 days, while more than 45, 75% of PCR positive collections are completely seronegative. <laughs> For the large group that are seronegative, many are likely not to represent for convalescent serology. So PCR closes that gap with a sensitivity of about 80%. If clinical suspicion is high, however, and the PCR is negative, mm -hmm. then convalescent serology should also be performed at around two to three weeks. Well, that's made it very clear. Thank you very much for that. Now, what are the different types of serology assessments available? I mean, um, what's the difference between IFA and EIAs? And is one preferred or more accurate or easier to interpret? Um, so there are, as you've mentioned, there are three different methods to detect the antibody response, enzyme immunoassay or EIA, immunofluorescence or IFA, or complement fixing antibodies. <laughs> EIAs in large labs like ourselves can be automated and suitable for high throughput and often used as screening assays, <laughs> particularly the phase two IgG and IgM for acute diagnosis. Whilst IFA is considered gold standing, standard, the reading can be subjective. IgG, A and M to both phase one and two, uh, that is six antibodies are often reported but IFA is considered the most sensitive. Complement fixing antibodies against um, phase one and two, uh, uh, can, uh, against phase one and two uh, are also reported. Whilst they are very specific, they are less sensitive. I find, however, CFTs much more straightforward and easier to, to interpret compared to the six IFA test reports. Still sounds confusing to me, I'm afraid, Dr. <laughs> <laughs> but um, now you, you said that the complement fixing antibody is very specific, but it's not that um, sensitive. It's not that sensitive. Uh, and, and IFA is probably the most sensitive of the tests. That, that's correct, yes. So um, if, I, if I was to order, do I actually? actually have to state what sort of um, serology assessments I'm ordering? 
Um, no, given the multitude of tests and the different algorithms available, um, if you provide the clinical context for the request, then I think most laboratories will desi decide the appropriate panel. Mm -hmm. And so the, the, the general clinical context are pre-vaccination screen, mm -hmm. acute Q fever, follow-up of acute Q fever, particularly in patients with risk factors for developing chronic uh, infection, um, investigation of chronic or persistent localised Q fever, or monitoring treatment for Q fever, chronic Q fever. And depending upon what scenario, it, uh, the, the laboratory will choose the most appropriate assays to perform. Is it possible, uh, Dr. Robson, to have a lit the list that you've just read uh, sent to us so we can actually attach it to the podcast so that we would know exactly what to put down on the forms when we uh, request serology. Yes, that would be um, easy to do and and also would help. I think sometimes, you know, it is difficult because many times we don't receive any information on the request slip mm. and uh, the inappropriate test is done. Now, um, I have this question on Q fever panels um, that you run and report on. What, what really are we referring to? So um, I, I think we're, I might just preface this question, if you don't mind, by explaining that the two, there are two different antigenic forms of Q fever that can be distinguished. Mm -hmm. And the, the difference resides in the cell wall or the surface lipopolysaccharide of the organism. Mm -hmm. And phase, phase one organisms are the virulent form and isolated from infected individuals and animals and have a complete cell wall LPS. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, phase two organisms are non-virulent and develop following repeated passage in cell culture or fertilised eggs. Phase two have a truncated LPS due to spontaneous genetic deletions on repeated passage in the laboratory. Mm -hmm. So what does all that mean? Antigenic variation, phase one or two, is important for serological diagnosis and vaccine production. Phase two antibodies are found in high levels in acute Q fever, whereas phase one antibodies are useful to support the diagnosis of chronic infection, otherwise known as focal persistent infection. Right. I see. Um, so, so um, depending upon the uh, context of the uh, of the request, we might choose whether we do phase one, phase two, a combination of both. Uh, whether we add in um, the the full IFA panel when we're monitoring for a chronic Q fever, or, mm -hmm. or trying to diagnose a chronic Q fever infection. Now, what specimens are used for PCR testing? So certainly um, for acute Q fever, uh, okay. EDTA blood is often recommended as the okay. organism is intracellular in monocytes. But we've actually found that serum samples produce equivalent results and that's what we use in the majority of cases. And that's quite useful because we can perform the PCR on the same specimen, that a serum specimen that is collected for serology. Oh, that's good. Now, what information should be included on a Q fever serology PCR lab requisition. I think you've mentioned that, uh, or is it simply sufficient to just request a Q fever serology or PCR? 
Look, I think um, the clinical context should be rep on the, uh, reported on the request. Mm -hmm. And as I mentioned, I, I'll send you the uh, list, but it's important to know if it's a pre-vaccination screen. Mm -hmm. Are we looking for a diagnosis of acute Q fever? Are we following up the patient who's been diagnosed and has risk factors for developing chronic infection and looking for the evolution and development of uh, phase one antibodies, particularly risk of people, there are certain people in high risk groups for that. Are we investigating for the presence of chronic or persistent localised Q fever in culture negative endocarditis, okay. or are we monitoring treatment of chronic Q? And supplying those contexts allow us to provide an interpretation that is most useful for you. Okay. Provision of the symptoms provision of the symptom onset date and any prior vaccination history for Q fever is also useful. It's so important you mentioned this to, especially to doctors who don't order these tests regularly, uh, because it really requires you, both of us, to work closely together. Uh, you can't read our minds and you cannot see the clin clinical contexts. And, and I really appreciate actually those very clear categories that you've given us. Now, what lab tests would you order in a patient um, you suspect has chronic Q fever? How would these results differ in a patient experiencing a chronic Q fever? Well, first, um, for chronic infection, rates of blood and serum PCR positivity, even with endocarditis, for example, okay. have ranged from 33 to 64%. Um, so PCR blood, for chronic infection has poor sensitivity. Its greatest value is when it's performed on focally affected tissue, such as removed heart valves, bone and joint biopsies, and soft tissue abscess biopsies. Yeah. On the other hand, the key serological indicator is an elevated phase one IgG with or without phase one IgA. High levels of phase two IgG are usually also present. It is important to remember that elevated phase one serology, though, is not um, is uh, alone is not sufficient to confirm a diagnosis of chronic infection. Okay. When international comparisons were conformed, variability in TEDAS across different reference labs and countries was marked, despite the use of the same techniques. So parallel testing at a single laboratory is preferable. Now, can lab testing aid in a diagnosis of Q fever fatigue syndrome? Unfortunately, there are no tests available to diagnose post-fever Q fever fatigue syndrome. Okay. Occurring in 50 to 20 15 to 20% of infected individuals, both those who were treated with antibiotics as well as those who had spontaneous resolution of their symptoms. Mm -hmm. And unlike chronic infection, it's not life-threatening but can be debilitating and seriously affect quality of life. So certainly it's important to look for evidence of prior Q fever infection, but they, these patients do not have serological criteria suggestive of chronic infection. Mm. So... Just coming back to that, if if that's the case, um, it really is a not an easy diagnosis to make, then, Dr. Robson. No, similar to many cases, uh, to um, uh, the. It's, no, certainly not. Um, the only thing that you can do is um, pr uh, 
prove that the patient has had prior Q fever by looking for evidence of either phase two or phase one IgG antibodies mm -hmm. or a residual complement fixation test that suggests prior exposure to Q fever. And that together with the constellation of clinical symptoms uh, points you to the diagnosis. Okay. Now, can serology, serology levels indicate if a person has immunity to Q fever? So there's no serological correlate for immunity. However, those, as I mentioned, with past infection often have residual IgG and low-level complement-fixing antibodies. Mm -hmm. Some previously infected individuals will, though, become seronegative over time. So negative serology alone does not exclude prior Q fever infection or exposure. Can you explain the process of pre-vaccination screening, including the serology tests prior to vaccination with Q fever vaccine, and why are these tests important to perform? So Australia is so fortunate to be the only country in the world to offer an effective Q fever vaccine. Pre-vaccination screening, however, is cumbersome and it consists of three parts. Firstly, a medical history seeking documented prior Q fever or a compatible clinical history of Q fever following at-risk exposures, prior Q fever vaccination, a history of egg allergy or allergy to other uh, uh, components of the vaccine, pregnancy, all of which may be contraindications to vaccination. The two arms of the immune response, however, also need to be tested. The humor response with serum blood collection looking for evidence of phase two IgG by either EIA or IF or CFT antibodies at a, at a specific pre-vaccination screening dilution, as well as an intradermal skin test looking for evidence of prior cell-mediated immune response to coxiella antigens. These are not immune status, tests of immune status, but they're, they're done to more to exclude those people from vaccination who develop a hyper, might develop a hypersensitivity reaction following vaccination. Mm -hmm. Positive results in either serology, skin test, or both preclude vaccination. Um, and the only other I think I think is important to note, an interval of two weeks should be allowed for protection to develop prior to entering the at-risk workplace. Interesting. Now, what would you advise if an individual displays a negative skin test but an equivocal antibody blood test? So an equivocal serology result with a negative skin test does not automatically exclude vaccination. Equivocal serology may be due to past for Q fever, but it also may be nonspecific and result from cross-reactions due to antigens shared between Coxiella and other bacteria, such as its most close relative, Legionella or Bartonella, for example. You could also ask the lab to repeat the serology test using an alternative method, because there are at least three, and perform a risk assessment. Well, that's important. And what does it mean if the skin tests show a level of induration within a week? So um, erythema or induration that occurring less than seven days it should not be regarded as significant. Um, we're looking for a cell-mediated immune response, which really takes at least seven days to develop. Right. And there's a small extended window for reading out to 10 days. Palpation is the key sensation to determine induration, and any erythema should not be regarded as positive. <laughs> 
And what are the potential challenges associated with ordering these important pre-vaccination tests? Um, well, first off, the clinical history that allows us to perform the correct serology test um, and clear clinical notes should ensure this. Um, the skin test vial has to be diluted uh, with a sterile normal saline, and this can be kept for four to six hours at four degrees and then can be discarded. And so multiple skin tests can therefore be performed from the one vial. Mm -hmm. Ideally, we need to collect blood before the skin test is administered as it can affect subsequent PCR testing. Making sure that the patient is available to represent at seven days for a skin test reading. Mm -hmm. Don't be afraid to repeat it in the other arm if the injection is not intradermal. As for all vaccine administrations, have some adrenal on hand as a precaution should anaphylaxis occur. And remember, only palpable raised induration seven or more days after intradermal injection is regarded as positive. Now, what are the potential challenges associated with ordering? Oh, here we go. We've done that, sorry. Uh, what are the limitations across regional and remote Australia in regards to accessing these important serology tests? Um, well, serology, because you're reading the skin test at seven days, um, serology results need to be available within a week okay. uh, at the time the skin test is read so that decisions around vaccination, vaccination can be made then and there. These tests are run daily in most labs, so this shouldn't, shouldn't be an issue. And collection centres are located throughout regional Queensland and New South Wales to provide this service. Okay. Are there any differences in ordering Q-fever serology tests for a rural GP uh, compared to a, a metropolitan practitioner? Um, not specifically. Um, more opportunistic vaccination for persons living in rural areas of Australia would be great. And what measures do you see that would help bridge this gap to alleviate those limitations or pressures? Well, um, perhaps cost is really the, a likely contributor to poor uptake, um, which is estimated to at least be at least $400 over two visits. Wow. It's not on the pharmaceutical benefits or the National Immunisation Program, but tax deductible for at-risk occupations. Between 2001 and four, the government subsidised a national Q-fever vaccination program to extend vaccination beyond abattoirs to the at-risk rural community, and it was shown to be effective. A similar initiative might alleviate the financial constraints associated with get getting vaccinated. I might just add that under active research is a test for gamma interferon production in patient whole blood on exposure to coxiella antigens that in the future may have the potential to be a marker of Q-fever exposure. Okay. It's based on, on the principles of the quantiferin TB gold assay that detects latent TB, and it may potentially simplify the pre-vac screening process, which at the moment is fairly arduous. Future development of less reactogenic but still effective vaccines would also be tremendous. Now, can you share some of your learnings from running your pathology service across Queensland in response to Q fever? And what can GPs take from these to implement into other regions of the country? Well, most importantly, ask yourself, could this be Q fever? 
it is not an uncommon infection. Australia has one of the highest rates of infection in the world. Mm-hmm. Only 50% of cases have direct contact with animals. The diagnosis cannot be made on clinical grounds alone. Mm-hmm. And there are adequate, uh, excellent laboratory services available to confirm infection if requested. I think the routine addition of PCR to our diagnostic algorithm has certainly improved our ability to detect cases earlier and diagnose those that may initially be initially be seronegative and don't present for convalescent testing. Another initiative has been uh, uh, to multiplex Q fever and leptospirosis PCR in the same test. Mm-hmm. Even one is not when one is not requested, both are performed. If positive, we'll notify the requesting doctor. We have diagnosed a number of cases of both lepto and Q in this manner when they have not been specifically requested. And we hope to expand this multiplex panel uh, in, in the future. And it sounds like a very helpful thing, Jane. Now, do you have some key messages for our listeners, Dr. Robson? Um, so uh, I think... Uh, the important thing is to think you fever, even if you do, if there's no animal contact, particularly in the peri-urban urban, uh, uh, fringes of even major metropolitan c- cities. Mm-hmm. In ho- hotspot areas, the seroprevalence can be up to 20%, uh, uh, but overall in Australia, it's around 5%. So as I said, it's not an uncommon infection, although 50% um, uh, actually are asymptomatic and people don't recognise they've had the infection. Um, so really it's thank you fever and ask for the test, particularly if there are, um, and ask for the test. Um, yeah. But I I do thank you for giving us those categories, uh, so that we can inform you, um, of what tests you're going to do, because I I certainly can't remember them. And, um, thank you for reminding us that, uh, it's really not far out from us in the city, in the centre of the city, and that our patients don't actually have to have direct contact with the animals. Uh, it's very important to remember those things. Okay. Well, Dr. Robson, I do really thank you for your time and for this very interesting learning opportunity. Thanks, David. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about this subject. <laughs>